0: So just curious, what if I asked y'all this morning, do you mind, uh, Jennifer and I would like to build a $20 million home. We're going to start a special offering to make that happen. Well, last year, if you remember, Creflo Dollar, who is the pastor of World Changers International Ministry, asked his congregation to start a fund to give him a sixty-five million dollar jet. You remember the story? Anybody remember the story? If you missed it, just Google Creflo Dollar, and your mind will be blown. And and you can imagine, as I was when I read the story, like, are you kidding me? Like, did he seriously ask his congregation? And so when he started getting negative. Get a feedback When people started saying, that's not a good idea, you know what he responded? He says, if I want to believe that God will give me a $65 million jet, who are you to stop me from dreaming? No one can stop me from dreaming. Dreaming? That's dreaming? Dreaming that God would give you a $65 million jet as a pastor of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the very man God who tells us to give our possessions away from the poor. I mean, that's an extraordinarily dream, but Creflo fits into the category of what we like to call in America what? Televangelists. $1,000 suits, bad haircuts, massive following, and millions of dollars. We think televangelism is a thing of the past, but it very much is so a thing of the present. With the usage of the internet with podcasts, with audiobooks, with endless opportunities that are out there. Televangelism is now more popular today than ever was before. And it's that bait and switch kind of ministry. And they're preaching a message that basically says God desires to give you more. And I guess if you're a televangelist and that's a message you're preaching, then you need to live so yourself, including some of the televangelists that have an immaculate net worth. Joyce Myers, who is featured oftentimes um, on different channels, she has a network of Ten million dollars. Benny Hinn, who I imagine you remember from a kid, he always looked like he had the neo suit on uh, that, that particular like outfit. Uh, he his net worth is is roughly about forty two million dollars. People Magazine reported that in two thousand five, Joel Osteen stopped collecting the two hundred thousand dollar salary he was gaining from the church. Hard guy, hard life, right? Because he was making enough money off his book deals and video deals. His net worth is is roughly around forty million dollars, and he lives in a seventeen thousand square foot, $10 million mansion in Houston. Creflo Dollar, we spoke about before, $27 million. And this one shocks people the most. Billy Graham, America's pastor, is worth $25 million. So this isn't a criticism of who they are, and we're not going to critique what their net worth is. But this is a criticism of the message. What these guys are preaching, these ladies are preaching, is what we call the prosperity gospel. And it's popular here in America. The idea is that it's a self-serving gospel that says wealth is a sign of God's favor. Or God blesses those who bless him. Or God desires to make his faithful wealthy and happy. And it's easy for us to understand why this is popular in our country. As a people who desire to have power, to have money, to have stability, to have security, we want to invest in that type of gospel. But is that really how God works? Is that really how blessings work that God blesses those that bless him that God blesses the faithful is that how God works we're going to take a look at second Samuel chapter 7 verse 1 and our scripture for this morning has the makings of a prosperity gospel message why because David is already blessed abundantly and God is going to do a shocking thing he's going to bless David even more and so the passage is going to seem to us that if we're faithful to God then God will bless us in return so where are we picking up in the story? Well, for those that missed this, Jeremy uh, hit us off in a brilliant message last week to talk about that David triumphantly comes into Jerusalem. He wants to put a fi- the final stamp of approval in that, that God is at the centerpiece of Jerusalem. So he brings the Ark of the Covenant into town. So what happens next after that? Where do you go from there? Well, Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 1 says this. After the king settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies and around him, he said to Nathan the prophet... Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go and do it, for the Lord is with you. David is is pretty dense and attractive when it comes to his resume. Think about this. Out of all the men in all of Israel, God picked a 13-year-old, ruddy-haired, red-faced shepherd boy to be the next king of Israel. And then what would he do? He kills a nine foot, nine inch tall giant. And then immediately starts on this campaign for the next 15 years of his life of military success after military success. And when his, his father-like figure in King Saul begins to hate him and becomes jealous of him, what does he do? He eludes him year after year after year. Eventually Saul dies. David becomes the king of the northern tribes of Israel. Then he be, unites the kingdoms together. He, he brings the, the city of Jerusalem under the hands of, the Hebrew people. He brings the Ark of God into Jerusalem. He builds a house of cedar, a palace of cedar. He's sitting tall and mighty. It's easy for us to see why God has blessed David so much. It's so easy for us to see why David could so easily pin these words in the Psalms. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack for nothing. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blesses the one who takes refuge in him. We could go on and on. David was blessed abundantly. And the thing is for us, when we look at a figure like David or other people that seem blessed, we, just, we become over, so overwhelmed by their blessing become so consumed with what they have and what, what we don't have. But have you ever really stopped and considered just how blessed we are as individuals? We're created by a God who gave us life, who gave us a very existence. Each individual has an individual identity and giftedness. John tells us in the Gospels, what does he say? For God so loved the world that he, what? He gave He gave. God gave us his love. It's not just the surface level love. It's an abundant type of love. It's a love that is so brilliant enough that God said, I can't just stop with creating humanity. I'm going to come and walk in humanity's brokenness. I'm going to experience life in the way they experience life. I'm going to touch their lives. I'm going to invite them into new life, into a new way of the kingdom of God, into everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave and Scripture tells He gave us His only Son. God should have just stopped there. He's giving us so much. He gives us an eternal kingdom that's here and now. He gives us a, a community called the church to be a part of. He gives us other people to journey in life with. God gives us uh, His love liberally and, and benevolently and hospitably and thoughtfully and so graciously. And God gives, He's a provider. How many times in Scripture did Jesus tell us, don't worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, what you wear? God desires to give you these things. God is a giver. He's a provider. He gives us life, air in our lungs, food for our bellies. He gives us shelter. He gives us opportunities at work. That home you're living in, that flat screen TV on the wall, that tempur you lay down on each night, that is the result of God giving you opportunities in life. God has given us abundantly and overwhelmingly. So when we start to think about David and we become jealous of David, may we pause for just a second and say, maybe I can see myself in David. Maybe God has blessed me a little more than I care to recognize. Uh, any of you, when you were growing up, ever watched the show Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous? Would Robert Leach, anybody ever watch that? Yeah, and then NTV Cribs kind of take over that. The The life of the elite is absolutely absurd. There's been articles going around on the internet right now that Michael Jordan, for the last five years, has been trying to sell his $16 million uh, mansion in Chicago. And for some reason, he can't sell it. I don't know, I don't know why. You know, It's a 56,000-square-foot home. He has 15 bathrooms. He has a, a regulation-sized basketball court enclosed and also one on the outside. He has an infinity pool. He has a putting green. He has tennis courts. He has a cigar room. He has a stunning front entrance with emblazoned on the front the number 23. And we look at homes like Michael Jordan, we're like, holy moly. And then we think about the lives of the rest of the elite. They have helipads. They have in-home movie theaters with leather recliners. And we begin to think to ourselves, wow, that must be nice. That's how David is sitting pretty right now in our scripture. David is sitting in in a cedar home, in a cedar palace, meaning he's sitting in a home that is made from the most rare and finest and strongest wood in the region. And he's sitting propped up. In his wealth, and he begins to think to himself, something is missing. Let me see, I've defeated my enemies, I've killed giants, uh, conquered the city of Jerusalem, check, the ark is here, something is missing. Oh, I know what's missing. God is in a tent outside the city. And so David begins to say to himself, God is in a structure that could easily be folded, easily be put away. God is in a structure that could easily be destroyed. Here I am sitting in this house of cedar. I need to build a house for God. David wants to build a temple for God. And the prophet Nathan responds to David simply, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it for God is with you. This should be our only response to God's blessing. When God blesses us, we should try to bless God in return. But the thing is, is that our response? Do we truly try to bless God with the blessings that God has given us? For many of us, we've experienced real need in life. We've been in a place where we have been struggling with all sorts of things. And and then we finally have relief from that need, from that burden, from that turmoil in our life but our thought is never to give thanks to god never to bless god in return for blessing us how often do we ask god for our daily bread and god gives us our daily bread and our next request is god can you go ahead and line up next week's bread that would be great we desire from God, and when God gives us to us, how often is our response to keep to ourselves? That job that we've been wanting to have, that promotion we wanting to have, that increase in income that we've been wanting to have, how often as soon as we get those things do we buy that bigger home? Do we begin to spend our money in different ways? When we finally get more time off from work, our first reaction is to, let's take a vacation here, let's go do this for ourselves. If our natural response to God should be to bless God in return, why is it not? Why do we often keep to ourself? And the other question we have to ask here of David is, why are you trying to build a house for God? This gets back to the prosperity gospel we've been preaching of before. How often do we try to build a house for God in hopes that God would give us something in return? You see, that's the motivation of the prosperity gospel. The idea is that you do something for God and God will do something for you. So David is trying to build a house for God, and some biblical scholars have tried to argue David is just trying to cement himself spiritually and politically among the people, but we know the heart of David and I don't think that's the fact. But how often do we do that in our lives? How often do we try to bless God so that God would bless us in return? The motto of the prosperity gospel is this: God is good to those who are good to him. If you just ask the Lord, he will give you whatever you desire. God wants to make us happy. Be. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to make you prosper and find life. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, and I will give you abundantly. This is the motto of the prosperity gospel. This is what we buy into as Americans. We desire to bless God so that God would bless us in return. But the challenge of the prosperity gospel is this God can't be controlled. God can't be managed. God can't be manipulated. And so though we might try to do these things to gain God's favor, is it really going to work out for us in the long run? Why are we trying to build a house for God in our life? God throws a curveball here in this scripture in verse 4. It says but that night the word of the lord came to nathan saying go and tell my servant david this is what the lord says are you to one to build a house for me to dwell in i have not dwelled in the house from the day i brought you uh, brought the israelites out of egypt to this day i have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling whenever i have moved with all the israelites I, did i ever say to those rulers whom i commanded to shepherd my people of israel why have you not built me a house of cedar Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you out of the pasture from tending the flock and anointed you ruler over all the people of Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone. I have cut down your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on all the earth. I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant so that they will have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did in the beginning and I have done this ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel I will also give you rest from all of your enemies In some regards, this is an interesting passage because David is viewing God through the lens of his success. David is thinking to himself, I was a shepherd boy, now I'm a king. There was a giant, I killed the giant. There was those armies, I put down the armies. There was a city of Jerusalem taken up by pagans, I defeated them. It's now the capital city of God's people. God needs me to do something for him. I love how God graciously puts David in check in this moment. He's like, David, just a little general reminder, I'm God. <laughs> I don't need any of these things from you. I don't need you to build me a temple been in a tent because i chose to be in a tent i've been wandering with the people because i chose to wander with the people david i don't need you to do this for me and just a reminder you are a wee little shepherd boy that hadn't hit puberty yet and i chose you not you choose me and so we learn something about the nature of god here that god doesn't need our blessings That God doesn't need anything from us, but God allows us to give those things to him. And then he says here to Nathan in in verse 11, he says, The Lord declares to you the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. Your own flesh and blood and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me in my name. And I will establish a throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. This is the key in verse 15. But my love will never be taken away from him. As I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of his entire revelation. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and he said, Who am I, sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? I am not a fan of predictable movies, so that's why I don't watch any Sandra Bullock movies. They literally are predictable from the first minute to the end. Jennifer gets annoyed with me, will sit and watch those movies, and I'll tell her what's going to happen in the end at the beginning. I just don't like predictable movies. I like the kind of movies that you get to the end, you're like, whoa, I did not see that coming whatsoever. One of the greatest movies of all time came out in 2001. It was a, mo- a movie with Nicole Kidman called The Others, and it takes place in World War II, and she's in a mansion by herself with her two kids as her husband is off fighting in war too and she begins to suspect that someone is in their home and she doesn't know what's happening eventually she begins to figure out that there is some sort of haunting some sort of ghost in her home and the twist at the end is in fact no it's not a ghost that's haunting her Her and her two children are dead. They are the ghosts that are haunting the new homeowners. I love twists in the movies like that. The greatest twist ever in a movie can be summed up with the question Who is Kaiser Sose? I love twists in movies. And that's what happens in our scripture. David is thinking to himself, I'm going to bless God. God has blessed me. I'm going to bless God. And God pulls one of those, man, I didn't see that coming kind of moments because he says to David, In fact, no, actually, I'm going to build a house for you. I'm going to establish your throne forever. I am going to place you in an everlasting house. It can also be translated an everlasting kingdom. Biblical scholar Tony Cartledge writes, This is the most important chapter in all of Scripture, in the Hebrew passage of Scripture. What a fascinating twist in the tale. That David wants to bless God, but God turns around and says, No, actually, I'm going to bless you in return. You want to build me a house, David, just keep in mind, you're not going to build me a house, but your son Solomon is going to build me a house. But he says these very key words, and this is what we need to struggle with as we finish up our text. God says, your throne will endure forever. Your kingdom will last forever. And this is really curious because um, that didn't happen. Solomon takes over his father when his father dies. And historically speaking, Solomon kept up this golden age of Israel as we think about it. But in 910 BC, his son Rehoboam takes over and the golden age of Israel begins to crumble. The northern tribes that David was king of for 15 years, they eventually secede from the southern tribes. They separate themselves line after line, king after king, comes and fails from the line of David. And with this waxing and waning kingdom of Israel, soon names like this pop up. Assyria and Babylon. You see, in 587 B.C., 400 years after God made this promise to David, you know what happens? The Babylonians come into Israel. They destroy it. They sack the city of Jerusalem. They tear its walls to the ground. And that temple that Solomon built for God, that God said Solomon would do, you know what happened to it? It was crumbled to the ground and left in ruin. And the people of God were taken to Babylon and exile. Where's that everlasting kingdom that God promised? Where is that David and the line of David that's going to sit on the throne forever? Why is God turning his back on his people? Have you had moments like that in your life? I know I have. Where you begin to say to yourself, God promised us this. God said this through Christ. God was saying that he was going to make these things happen and they don't happen in our lives." And many of us have struggled with very challenging things in life. Many of us have struggled with deep and dark depression, difficult days of our life where we begin to wonder, is anyone loving us? Is anyone going to be a part of us? I need community in our life and I can't find community. For many of us, we face financial struggles in life. Moments where we didn't know where the next paycheck was going to come from. And yet we serve a God who says, ask for your daily bread and I'll give it to you. You see, we find places in our life, just like Israel did, where they said, God promised us great things. Where are those great things to come? Where is God in all of this? But what's fascinating is that God does fulfill his promise to David. But it doesn't come in a way that they were anticipating. Instead of a great king that comes riding in on a horse, leading an army of people, God fulfills his promise in a baby. A baby. (laughs) What? God chose a 14-year-old virgin who is married into a man who descends from the line of David to bring forth God's son into this world. The king that will establish a kingdom forever and ever. And so God sends his son into this world. And he doesn't come in living in in wild richness and, and, and elite nature of everyone of his day. He comes and he lives in poverty. A king doesn't live in poverty. And as Jesus began to arise, as Jesus began to live among the people, as Jesus began to preach this message, all of a sudden an understanding of a great kingdom promised through David begins to form, begins to take shape. But it wasn't in a way that the people predicted. You remember way back in in 2012 where there was a bunch of people that were claiming this is it. On December the 21st, 2012, the world is going to end. And what was this based on? It was based on a civilization that died out 1,200 years ago, the Mayans. The Mayans predicted through their calendar that great destruction and devastation was going to come. and, And the scientists and everyone who studied all of their transcripts said December 21st, 2012, is when it's going to start. And so people were stockpiling guns. They were stockpiling ammunition. They were bringing all sorts of supplies into their homes. They were readying themselves for the apocalypse. And then December 22nd happened, and then Christmas came, and the new year came. Nothing's as accurate to me than a civilization that died out 1,200 years ago. I don't know about you, but... Aren't you kind of glad that God fulfills His promises, and He doesn't do it in a way that we anticipate? God keeps promises. But it's not always in ways that we expect. God desires to bless us, but it's not always in ways that we can shape and we can form and that fit into our liking. God doesn't always bless us in ways that pad our wallet, that pad our savings account, that give us that home, that give us that family, that give us these things that we anticipate. God blesses us. God keeps his promises. But are we faithful enough to see that God shapes that in different ways, in different forms? It's challenging for us to see. And so that's what this text teaches me. Nearly 900 years after God said to David, I'm going to give you an everlasting kingdom. A baby is born in Bethlehem, the city of David. And he would come and he would establish a house, a kingdom that is just not for Israel, that's just not for their ruling elite, but it is a kingdom for all people. And the thing about the kingdom that Jesus established is you can't fit it into a neat and pretty box. Jesus began to teach about the kingdom of God. He began to say things like this. The kingdom of God is like a father who has two sons, or like a wedding banquet, or like a widow with two coins, or like a man who fell under the hands of robbers, or like a farmer who's out sowing seeds. The kingdom is like mustard seeds. And then Jesus began to talk about the kingdom. What does it look like? Where is it? He said that in my father's house are many rooms. But where is that house? Where is that kingdom? And then Jesus says this curious phrase in the gospel of Luke. He says, the kingdom of God is among you. It can also be translated, the kingdom of God is within you. Where is this kingdom? Where is this everlasting house that God has promised us? These are the promises of God. And it doesn't always come in tangible ways that we expect, but it comes in brilliant ways. It seems as though God's promise to David was a promise through David to build a house, an everlasting kingdom, an eternal throne by which God rules, inviting all of God's creation into the narrative of the kingdom, to find mercy and love and forgiveness, to find citizenship and a home, to take up the way of the kingdom and to transform the world one person at a time in the most radical and undeserving grace. God keeps promises, but it's not in ways that we anticipate. So how do we respond to God? learned that there is nothing you and I can do to bless God there is absolutely no way there is no amount of money there is no amount of time there is no amount of whatever you can think of that will ever match the blessings of God so what do we give to God we give to God exactly what David gave to God complete and utter faithfulness That's what we give to God. That is the only response we can give to God. We don't give God fractures of our life. We don't give God the things that are easy, the things that are comfortable with. We give God all of ourself, all of our heart and our mind and our soul. Can you give your faithfulness to God? Can you see that God desires to fill his promises in you? Let's pray together. God, this is a very unique text. We're talking about a conversation that happened roughly 3,000 years ago. And we're supposed to figure out what this means to us. It's challenging. Because, God, I can think of moments in my life where I think of the blessings you have given me, but I think about the promises that you've given me, and I think about the loss that I've experienced in so many different ways. And I look at that hurt, and I look at that loss, and I say, where were you in all that? Where was the promises that you said you would give me in this? And, God, myself, I am challenged to see that you owe me nothing you give me everything and so God may we be consumed by the everything that you give us by that breath that we just took by the eyes that we see around us that home we're going to go to in just a few minutes, by that car we're going to take to get there, by the family and friends and community we have around us, by the food that we will consume and we already consume today the fact that many of us will wake up tomorrow and continue life as normal by the endless ways you have blessed us in the most tangible and practical ways God may we be consumed not by that but by the hope and the love and the joy and the peace and the grace and the mercy and the kingdom you invite us into through your son Jesus Christ God I know that I fail at being grateful I ask for your forgiveness Ask for forgiveness the times that you bless me and I choose to keep that blessing to myself so God I pray that what I give you this morning is faithfulness and may that be the prayer for each of us this morning that we don't give portions of ourselves to you the things that are comfortable but we give ourself to you our time, our schedules, our, our wallets, our priorities, our family, our children, our, our loved ones, our job, our passions, our, our strengths, our perspective. We give all of that to you this morning. And where we lack faith, God, increase our faith. And where we have hurting of broken promises and need, push your hand on that and heal it. We ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Plus.